Let's get, let's get going tonight. I, I want to jump back into the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I don't really, I, I, every time I say this, it's a big lie and I go a long time, but I don't really feel like I have as long tonight. And I certainly don't based on the number of scriptures and screens we're using. It's, it's actually pretty minimal for us. Um, with that said, I, I'm, only, I'm only saying that because I decided to take a look at one little passage, one little moment in the Sermon on the Mount, and I'll tell you precisely why I chose this one, because I think it will actually help inform this lesson pretty well. When we've been doing this for the past, uh, shockingly, the past several months, time flies, that we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, at first it was pretty simple to just sort of move from the very beginning and work on the Beatitudes for a little while and kind of stay in chapter five, mingle around there, and I never really cared to go sequentially and left to right. It, was, it just sort of happened that way for a little while. Over the last few weeks, I've really just felt the pull of the Spirit to just open the Sermon on the Mount and start walking through it again for the you know, 10,000th time. We've all read it 10,000 times. And so as I will work through it, I have literally waited for the moment in that walkthrough. And I just slowly walk through the sermon, try to imagine Jesus saying it, try to put myself on that mountain. It's impossible. I got too much of my own context there. I'm going to mess that up. But the best we can do is students, right? So I'm trying to hear Jesus talk. And I wait for the moment where one of the verses sort of peeks its head above the others. And it's the best way I can say it. If I had to visualize it, it would sort of be like the flags all run up the flagpole. You've got all these flagpoles in the field. And the flag that hits the highest first is the one I sort of beep, I beam, in, beam in on and then really lock in. And that's what we've done the last few weeks is I've just waited for that flag to get to the top of the pole and go, that's the moment in the Sermon on the Mount. And I do that because I want to get up here and want to talk to you about it. I want it to be something that is fresh and exciting. Not that the Bible is ever not exciting, but you know what I mean. Sometimes some things just aren't in your wheelhouse or they're just not on your heart. So that's made this fun for me. Couple that with the fact that Sunday, um, Sundays for me if I'm not on the road and I'm not scheduled to preach somewhere, um, a lot of times it's a really chill morning, get up, drink some coffee, get in the Word, just listen to the Lord, maybe take a little walk and, uh, and have some prayer time and just a nice day of relaxing. And Sunday morning I could feel from the moment I got up the Holy Spirit really pulling me. And I've you know, been around long enough to know that voice and so kind of just got dressed and jumped in the truck and drove to the lake and sat in one of the parks and watched a dad fish with his kids off the pier. And, and uh, listen to the sound of the Spirit. Bible is in my lap, notebooks out, waiting for that flag to hit the top of the flagpole as I work through the Sermon on the Mount and, uh, and, and got to the text that we're going to read today. And, and, and then later in the day, got a message from a partner that really, really brought this together. And I knew I was hearing from the Spirit because I heard from that partner on the same day. So because of all of that, I'm very excited tonight to share with you just a few little things that I feel like the Lord is saying to me through this passage that is subtitled uh, or titled, you will know them by their fruit. Probably one of the most famous moments in all of the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount is that moment where Jesus tells us that we get to know them by their fruit. Um, there's, a, there's about 10 different ways to handle this. So how I wanna do it is just read the whole story. It's not a long one, it's, it's six verses, Matthew 7, 15 to 20, and in those verses, Jesus gives pretty much the fullness of this idea. I want to read it through with you, and then we're going to come back and do a little bit of work and, 
and try to lay this out through the context of their ear, but lay it out through what's going on in the church world today because there's some things I'd like to try to comment on as we move forward. Matthew 7, 15, Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? It's an interesting question. I dwelled on that for a long time Sunday morning. For some reason, that jumped to the top of the flagpole first for me. The last, that question at the end of verse 16, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? They're incongruent things. The answer, of course, is no. No one ever would because you would never find a grape. In other words, that seems to be the point. So keep that in mind. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Therefore, by the fruits you will know them. And we really get so excited in this passage over two things. And, and because of that, um, we miss the point, I think, a lot of times. We're really excited about people getting cut down, thrown into the fire. That really trips our trigger. We get all pumped about that in the church when we think other people are going to suffer. And then also, <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, I've, I mean, I've been doing this a while. I know what gets people to shout, all right? It gets people to amen sermons. And then the other one is we, know, we love the idea that in verse 20 we get to judge people based on their fruit. So a lot of times when we read this passage, we really just sort of blank out until we get, I mean, we, we read it. You know, we see what Jesus is saying. It gets a little wordy. You know, a good tree, but good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit. And you go, eh, I don't know. Then, oh, okay, well, here's where he lands because where he lands is all that matters, right? Some people are going to burn and we get to get a little tip by the Holy Spirit on who that someone's going to be. We get to know them by their fruit. Um, I don't want to bust your bubble, but this doesn't have anything to do with people burning up in hell for eternity. And it has even less to do with you getting to be a judge. So in light of that, what might Jesus be doing? And I got good news for you. It's way better than those two. All right. It's way better than a bunch of people get to burn and you get to have the inside scoop on who it is. Um, don't give up on the church. She's imperfect. She's got a lot of problems. But she's also the bride of Christ. Um, you got to be careful how you talk about another man's wife. So watch what you say about his church. Watch what you say about his local church. Watch what you say about his pastors. Not because it's don't touch the Lord's anointed. God's going to strike you if you say something bad about the pastor. No, it's, it's a courtesy thing. It's not a fear of God thing. It's a courtesy thing. You're talking about another man's wife. So you're talking about the church. You're talking about who she is. Mince your words, parse your words carefully. Let's say it that way. But you don't follow the church. You don't follow a denomination. You don't follow a figurehead. You don't follow a name. You don't follow a building. You don't follow an ideology, a doctrine, or a theory. You follow Jesus. What makes that difficult is that you don't see Jesus. We don't get a physical manifestation of Jesus. The best we do is we get to see him through sermons and songs. We get to see him through the church. We get to see him through leaders. We get to see him through morality. We get to see him through people. Maybe if we were using our heads creatively, we'd get to see him through the hurting and the outcast and the marginalized and the minority and the sidelined. And maybe that would be a better way because then we'd see that Jesus doesn't live in a building. Jesus lives everywhere and most of the time the places we fear to trod. And if we did that, we'd probably be a little less critical because 
how could we be so critical to a people hurting so badly? And then we would have discovered Jesus in a brand new way. That'd be a, probably another good place to start. So we follow him. Unfortunately, we often only follow the version of him that we have come up with. So I challenge you to wrestle for the rest of your life following Jesus and wrestle with what you've put out in front of you as Jesus and make sure that it's Jesus you're following and not someone's idea of Jesus. With all of that said, don't give up on the church and don't quit her because there are fakes, because there are a bunch of fakes. There are hypocrites and hurtful people. They are mean-spirited and mean-hearted. There are people who claim to know your Jesus who've never met him. There are people who think that morality can be legislated, voted upon, passed through Congress. There's versions of Christianity that are just merely tools of nationalism and government. Some of what is masked as, as uh, one thing is really another. Who are you to know? This scripture isn't your ticket to try to figure out who is and who isn't. So what I would say is, don't give up on Jesus. You don't see one disciple leave because Judas was a hypocrite. And yet in the church today, we go, well, I'm done. If so-and-so is a fake, I'm done. And yet you don't see Peter, James, and John go, if Judas Iscariot betrays him, I'm going to quit following him. I'm done with this. And it's because they weren't following anyone else's version. They were following Jesus. It's a little harder for us because we don't have the physical Jesus in front of us. And so, therefore, we might, because we fashioned a Jesus out of other things, watch people fail and fall and then feel like, oh, man, my whole world fell out from under me. It's why I'm constantly challenging you not to put your trust and your faith and your hope into men and ministries and churches because they will fail you. And if you are following them more than you're following Jesus, there'll be a big moment of failure for you too because something will have fallen off the pedestal that should have never been up there. And, and sometimes we're never really going to learn that until we learn it the hard way. And the hard way is to watch them fall off the pedestal and us fall down with them and lie there for a little while broken and then realize I wasn't supposed to be following them. But then also accepting the fact that we got hurt and then allowing the Lord to heal our hurts. That happens. I have a message from a partner on Sunday that I've never met from another state. It was out of the blue. It was someone I have hardly ever heard from. And they made, and I'm not going to read their message, and I'm just giving it, I'm not giving it verbatim. I'm just giving the spirit of it. But it was basically, hey, I listen all the time. You and I have never met. Um, I listen to you and so-and-so and so-and-so. And they said one of the so-and-sos had a miserable failure and have heard a lot of people, and I didn't know the person, but then I went and Googled them, and I probably should have known them. Um, it's just me not paying attention more than it was them not being famous. Um, and they had a miserable failure, and then their church is falling apart, and then the ministry's losing followers and all of this. And the person said to me, please, just know that there's a lot of us out there that watch you and there's a lot of us out there that you'll never meet. We depend on you to give us good news and to give us truth. I just want to encourage you to keep doing that um, because I'm angry and I'm hurt and I just want you to know I believe in you. And I could really feel the pain and the angst in this message to me. And the anger wasn't at me. The anger was at whoever so-and-so was and what they had done. And the anger, because I've been that guy, was also a little bit at himself, probably a little bit of his own anger at him. Like, why did I follow that guy so Why didn't I see that? Why couldn't I? 
And I, and I get that, because that would be me too. Um, but I've also saw this, this whole thing out there, this, this great big world of, and there's people all over it that are sort of reaching into this little thing we're doing. Thousands of them just reaching into it every day and taking a little bread out of that basket, putting it in their spirit belly. And it's a big, big deal to them and it means a ton. And I take that, I take that so serious, probably too serious, um, that I think about it all the time and, and it's one of the reasons why I do what I do because I think there's somebody that needs it tomorrow. If you don't do it, then they're not going to have it and, and that's got to be done. And so whatever you got to do to do it, do that. Um, with all of that, I was sitting in my vehicle and watching that flagpole go up with this text and heard the Holy Spirit say to me that the celebrity pastor's got to die. The day of the celebrity ministry has got to be over with, son. I just felt it so powerfully for the last three days of this, the Holy Spirit saying, we have to turn the page on the celebrity culture that has invaded the church because, because it's invaded the social media world and it's invaded our entertainment world. And we were so infatuated with fame that we just a few years ago elected someone whose claim to fame was hosting a television show, elected them to the highest office in the land. Our infatuation with people that we can recognize and put up is so borderline idolatrous and it doesn't belong in any of our lives and the last place it belongs is in the pulpit sharing good news with people and so I think if we would start there we could handle Matthew 7 even easier because I started to pray and ask the Lord why are you showing me this at the same time you show me this text what does this matter? Because the reality is, is there were no celebrity pastors at the Sermon on the Mount. It's not as if Jesus is addressing a problem of his day with sort of, you know, massive multi-campus ministries of people on pedestals and people's faces on billboards and all of us with our name on websites. He wasn't addressing us. It wasn't as if we are the audience that day on the Sermon on the Mount. But yet there was a problem called wolves in sheep's clothing, who people were reaching out to to receive grapes and figs, and all they were getting was thorn bushes and thistles. That's not a new problem. That's a problem as old as time, and apparently a problem that was a pretty big problem in the days of the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus opens with this thought in Matthew 7:15. Go to the first verse of this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. What a term that they look, it looks as if everything is fine, but on the inside, there is something going on that is not just not a sheep and it's not just a wolf. It's a ravenous wolf. It's a wolf starving to eat what they're used to eating. They've gotten a taste of it and they need more. There's a greed message in this verse. That, it, that this verse pulsates with because, and I'm, I'm, being, I'm, I'm watching it, I'm walking very carefully here because this cannot be a message of us versus them. This has to be an us. See, every time you decide that you want to judge, stop and realize that the desire to judge is because you see something somewhere else that very much reminds you of something you've seen in the mirror. 
And you feel like if you could get rid of it out there, maybe you could get rid of it in here. And so that, that urge to call people out is an urge to call you out. And it's, it's telling where we decide people need to be judged because it's almost always me projecting onto you what I don't like about me and I saw it in you and it looks terrible in you. And it makes me feel a little better to see it in you because that means I'm not alone. I'm not the only piece of scum, you know? I mean, I can find it over there. And so it's easy to take this and think about somebody else but greed's the pulsating emotion in this text. Inwardly, they are a ravenous wolf. Inwardly, they can't get enough because they're a wolf that's tasted blood. And once they've tasted blood, they have to have more. And it's, I got my hands on something and I need to get it on something else and something else and something else. And I think this doesn't just have to be ministers, ministries, pastors. That's how we can push it off on everybody else and it's not us. I think it can be anything that looks innocent, but down on the inside is bloodthirsty and lustful and desires more and more and more. I got to have bigger. I got to have better. I got to have, I got to have more platform. I got to have more influence. Oh, it's just me. It's just me being me. I'm just being humble before the Lord. And yet there's still this insatiable, like a black hole in our soul that we can't fill. That's the ravenous wolf. So, so don't, it's, it's better for you. Trust me, it's better for you to start with at home than it'll be to start with so-and-so. It just won't do you any good to start with so-and-so, at least not yet. Get honest at home first. So let's get honest in the context. What might someone who was standing there that day have been thinking? We start there, okay? Then we work into the present. What they might have been thinking is the, con the context, God's warnings in the Old Testament against false prophets almost always had to do with false prophets who were declaring ease and peace, but failed to warn Israel of coming destruction. It was almost always prophets that went, you're fine, and God went, you liars, they're not fine, you need to tell them the truth. Our favorite kind of preaching in, in, in America is go, go hammer away at them. And that was the prophecies that was God's warnings of false prophets in the Old Testament. They were often, he often called them blind. And, it, and many times, particularly in the book of Jeremiah, he would accuse them of prophesying their own dreams and their own visions. So they'd have a dream or they'd have a vision. They'd get up and they'd prophesy that in front of the people instead of prophesying what God gave them. But then Jesus does something new in the Sermon on the Mount. He introduces the concept of a false prophet who kills and eats sheep. Think about that. What a, what, a, what a twist. He introduces the idea of a false prophet who looks good on the outside, not one who's appeasing you, going, oh, you're going to be all right. That's Old Testament prophets that were false. Jesus flips the script. He introduces in the New Testament, he goes, they look fine, but they're a ravenous wolf. In other words, they've killed before they'll kill again. They've gotten used to the taste of lamb. And so... They've gotten used to consuming what they ought to be grooming. Hear that. Jesus said to Peter in John 21, at the end of John, Peter, you love me? Yes, the Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Three times. Take the love I have for you and feed my sheep. What would be the opposite? Don't know the love I have for you. Eat my sheep. Kill my sheep. Slaughter my lambs. 
This is the great warning. It also has echoes. I say echoes because it's not direct, like the voice straight out of your mouth, but like an echo that bounces off the cave wall a couple times. It has echoes of an Old Testament prophecy. It doesn't look like it verbatim, but I think you'll be able to hear it bounce off the cave wall. Here it is from Zechariah chapter 11, verse 4. Thus says the Lord my God, feed the flock for slaughter, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I am rich, and their shepherds do not pity them. Mm. This is one of the most scathing prophecies that ends up sort of bleeding over into the Sermon on the Mount that we get in the Old Testament. A group of shepherds or people who are in charge of sheep who sell them off and do it in the name of the Lord who cares what happens to the sheep. I'm rich. It's kind of the I've got favor. I'm doing well. Kind of who cares what happens to other people. That's a gospel gone to seed, man. That's where all that really matters is that the strong get stronger, the rich get richer, the powerful get more powerful, and the church gets bigger. It doesn't really matter if you step on people, crush them, slit their throats, shear them, fleece them, slaughter them, or eat them. It doesn't really matter. In fact, the shepherds don't even pity them. Zechariah 11. Where, where is this? By the way, I told you it was prophecy, which means it was coming up. From Zechariah on forward into the future. I don't want to work my way through the whole chapter. This is one that's we could do week after week after week from Zechariah 11. But look at the big boy verse. The one that lets you know where this baby lands. Verse 12. So God said to them, if it's agreeable to you, if it's agreeable to you for me to break my covenant, that's context, give me my wages and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. Okay, you know what this is. This is the moment in the Old Testament where God tells Israel, if you want me to break my covenant with you, pay me off. And he goes, they're going to pay me 30 pieces of silver. And then you get to the book of Matthew. And Judas Iscariot walks in and goes, what will you give me if I deliver you Jesus? And what do they say? 30 pieces of silver. And they hand him 30 pieces of silver. And at Calvary, God snaps the old covenant. That's part of what's going on at the cross. That's not all that's going on at the cross. But, you, but the cross is happening and that's happening too. So this is that text. So Jesus is prophesying. That in his day, there will be those who are slaughtering the flock. So who might he have in mind? It's the Sermon on the Mount. Who are the people that would fulfill the front half of Zechariah 11? They're going to fulfill the back half of Zechariah 11 when he dies. Who might be fulfilling the front half of Zechariah 11? Well, I think it's quite possible that it's the leadership, the religious leadership of Jesus' day. And in that religious leadership, Jesus spots a glaring problem. Let me jump back into that sermon from 16. Here's how you're going to know them. You're going to know them by their fruits. And then the great irony is the question that he asks. He makes this statement. You're going to know them by their fruit. Do you gather a grape by sticking your hand into a thorn bush? Would you go get a fig from hanging out with the thistles? Well, the answer is no way. So why the statement at the beginning? You're going to know them by their fruits. You're going to know them by their fruits, so why are you going to fruitless shrubs? Why stick your hand into a place where there's obvious thorns? You're never going to find a grape in a thorn bush. Why stick your hand in the thistle branch? You're never going to find a fig in a thistle branch. If you want grapes, go to a vineyard. If you want figs, go to a fig tree. Stop sticking your hand into a place where there is nothing to, re to receive. You'll, you're going to know them by their fruits. Okay. Here's your first hint. 
that you have the ability to figure out where the false prophet lives. Jesus told you in the previous verse, there's going to be false prophets. They're ravening wolves. You might say, well, I wish I could figure out who they are. You can. Do they have fruit? You go, well, I don't know. Maybe sometimes. Okay, let's double down. When you stick your hand in there for the grape, do you get stabbed once in a while? When you stick your hand in there for the fig, does it break the skin? Be honest. Get physicality out of your mind. He's obviously moved away from the physical into the spiritual. I mean, it's a physical illustration, but there's not a soul there that goes, yeah, yeah, sure, I go to a thorn bush, get grapes. It's supposed to be foolishly ironic. No one would go to a thorn bush to get a grape. No one would go to, uh, to gather grapes from a thorn bush or a fig from a thorn bush. Nobody in the world, and that's his point. He goes, why in the world would you stick your hand into the thorn bush thinking you're going to eat grapes? You know you're not going to eat grapes. The thorns should have taught you there's no grapes. If you put your hand in and go, ouch, you're not in a vineyard. That was Jesus' point. You're not in a vineyard. Or you think, ooh, it's fig time. And you reach in and your skin gets ripped off your arm and you bring it out and he goes, why would you stick your hand back in there to get a fig the next time? It didn't work the first time. Did you think that maybe they just stuck razor blades on the fig leaves? The answer is no. You can't reach into a place that harms you and bring out the good. There it is. You can't keep... Going back to what cuts you and thinking, oh yeah, but there's probably a grape in there somewhere. He goes, you could just keep sticking your hand in there all day long and you're just going to keep getting stuck. You're just going to keep bleeding because you keep reaching in. And what we're supposed to be judging in this text is to know them who are them. The false prophets by their fruit. Okay, so what does it not tell you? Because I've taught you this before. Sometimes you can learn a lot by what it doesn't say. What does it not say that we think it says? You can tell if people are saved or not by the way they live. Bless God. The Bible says you'll know a tree by its fruit. You can tell whether they're saved or not by the way. You can tell whether they're anointed or not by the way they act. You can tell whether they're close to God or not by the way they act. All you got to do is look at their fruit and you can judge them. No, Jesus says there are false prophets that look good, but they're not. They'll kill you and eat you. And if you keep sticking your hand in there thinking you're going to get something good, that's on you. You're never going to get a grape by putting your hand in a thorn bush. You should know it's not a winery. There's no grapes. You're going to know who the false ones are because every time you go back to get blessed, you end up getting beat. You'll know a tree by its fruit. It's the warning that should save us from pain if we'd pay attention to it. Quit dipping in to the place that stabs you. That every time you go back to it, you feel like death. That they keep taking your joy. They keep robbing your peace. They keep taking your sanity. They keep squashing it and crushing it because you're convinced that if you just reached in farther, there's the best grape you could find. You're just not doing it right. The gospel is not hard to receive. Following Jesus is not easy. Receiving the gospel is easy. Receive 
what he has given you because it's a gift. It doesn't cost you anything. If it costs you, it would be wages, not grace. That's what makes grace wonderful. Where people make it difficult, there's a thorn. The harder we make it to receive the love of God, the thornier the bush. Maybe it's time to stop reaching in. Maybe it's time to find a different place to go harvest your grapes. This could be what Jesus is saying to us. Now, let me present what becomes a very obvious problem in this chapter. One of the reasons why we're really excited about You'll Know a Tree by Its Fruit is because of what it comes on the heels of. It comes on the heels of this from the top of seven. We haven't done this verse yet. This will be kind of an intro for us to this. We'll dig into this deeper at another time. Matthew 7, and this is in front of our text, verse 1 and 2, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Very simple statement. Just don't judge people. You know, what do you do with this verse? Here's a good place to start. Just stop judging people. I mean, it's a really good place to start with Matthew 7. You go, yeah, but I want the theology of it. Okay, basic theology. Stop judging people. If you started there, then you wouldn't have to start filtering through all the stuff that maybe gives you an excuse to judge somebody. We, get, we, we don't like this, and then we get kind of excited when we get to the Noah tree by its fruit verse because we think, oh, now he's giving you the caveat. He told you not to judge at the top of the chapter, but he's not really serious about that. He, what he really meant was don't judge quickly. Ah, that's what he meant. Don't judge quickly, because if you could just spend some time in the vineyard, you'd figure out whether they were a winery or not. Then you can judge the fire out of them. But you can't do that right out of the gate. You've got to relax. Don't judge them fast. No, judge not so you don't get judged in return, because guess what? However you do, it's going to come back to you. Don't come whining to God. It's going to be one of those natural consequences. You want to go beat people up? Get ready when they beat you up. Don't go to the Father and go, can you please keep, keep them from beating me up? And the Lord goes, I already laid this out a couple thousand years ago. You want to live by the sword? Champ, you're going to die by the sword. You keep pulling the sword out of its sheath, it's going to end up sticking you. It's just the way that it is. Now, you can call that the... Listen, I'm okay with it. You can call that the wrath of God if you want. I don't really think that's what I would call it, but if that makes you feel better, you go, God's, God's wrath is on me. You go, oh, okay. I mean, the reality is, you judge people, they judge you back. You can call that God's wrath. Whatever it is, is you spurned love for your neighbor and what you get in return is a thorn bush. So start with judge not. So how do we graduate then from judge not to you'll know a tree by its fruit? We don't really land on an answer in the Sermon on the Mount because the Sermon on the Mount is not a theological discourse into depth. There's depth, but it's not Jesus trying to pull the layers back. It's Jesus laying stuff in front of us, and we're still here 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years later, peeling the onion. Ooh, this is what this could mean. But th- sometimes if you move a little deeper into the ministry of Jesus, you might get it fleshed out. So what you're going to try, let's jump from Matthew 7 to Matthew 12. Watch Jesus lay this out another way, and I think rounds this baby out pretty good. Matthew 12, 33. Watch this phrase. What an interesting line. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. Hmm. Not the tree either is good or the tree is bad, but make the tree good... And its fruit, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad because a tree is known by its fruit. If it has oranges on it, what kind of tree is it? Perfect. You graduated Jesus' school of tree spotters in Matthew 12 33. Very simple theological principle. 
You're going to know what kind of tree it is if you could see the fruit on it. If you can't see the fruit on it, you might not know the tree. Now, of course you can because you can know what bark looks like, how tall it grows, and what climate it's in. There's a really good chance. It's, if it's in Georgia, it's not an orange tree. When I lived in California and saw orange trees and lime trees and lemon trees, I was amazed. A Missouri boy living out there, I didn't know what this was for a long time. I thought it was pretty fascinating that they wouldn't grow in my environment. So there's other ways. But even a tree dork like me could figure out which ones were lemon trees if it was the right time of year. So that was, it didn't take a genius, it just took looking at fruit. And then this odd turn in 34. This is why I brought this verse in. Well, part of it's because of that interesting either make the tree good. We're going to do that in a second. But look at this odd turn. Brood of vipers? How can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, don't think he's changed the subject. And I'll tell you how you know he hasn't changed the subject. is because he uses the same contents. Make the tree good and the fruit good. Skip, 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 skip. Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? How would it be possible for you, evil trees, to bring out good things? And what's he call them? Brood of vipers. What's happening here? The next screen. Jesus puts the viper in the tree. Where do we see this in Scripture? This could be the closest we get to a New Testament commentary on the Genesis story of the snake in the tree. No other writer in the New Testament puts that snake in the tree. But Jesus does. Paul gets really close to his letter to the Corinthians when he says, Oh, I'm scared for you that you be deceived from the simplicity of Christ as the serpent deceived Eve. That's as close as he gets, but Paul leaves it out of the tree. Jesus identifies good tree, bad tree. Make the tree good or make the tree bad. You brood of vipers. You're convincing people of one thing, trying to convince people of one thing, but you are another. What's this mean? Truth is, I don't know. And I got some theories. I want to share them with you, okay? The Bible doesn't explore the theology of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil versus the tree of life near as much as the pulpit does today. Okay, I'll start there. The Bible doesn't. It doesn't mean that people haven't commented on it throughout history. It doesn't mean that the Midrash didn't comment on it vocally for Jewish oral tradition, but it means that the New Testament writers found other things to write about. I mean, there's way more ink in the New Testament on the snake cursed and put on a pole and lifted up, and if you view him, the venom will come out of your Then there is on the theology of what happened at the tree. It's, it's odd because we've pretty much got that figured out, that theology of the tree. I, I say that tongue-in-cheek because I don't think we have anything figured out. But I think the fact that Jesus puts the snakes, the scribes, the Pharisees, the high priests, the leaders of performance-based religion, he puts them in the tree, and he tells his audience, you guys have got to make the tree good or you've got to make the tree bad. It tells me this, you really can't function at all at a tree that has both good and evil. You just can't do it. Because what will live in that tree is a viper. And the more I wrestle with that, the more I realize that Jesus is the tree, the tree of life, dies on a tree. Jesus proclaims himself to be life. Life everlasting, light of the world. Jesus is drawing you to feed on him and drawing you away from feeding on everything else because anything else is going to have a snake attached. 
be very careful with a gospel of morality. Okay? A gospel of morality, which is this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. Do the good, shun the evil. Be careful when that's the centerpiece of the message. Because the gospel of morality can get its information from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The, the knowledge of good and evil. Both. Does God want Adam and Eve to be ignorant? No, he wants them to eat from the tree of life because life is what you need. Not a system of do's and don'ts, not a structure of conscientious morality, but an ability to follow the spirit of God, which is the life of heaven. And if we could follow the spirit of God, it would never lead us into darkness or death. It would always lead us to the feet of Jesus. It would always lead us to the life of the father. You have to start with the baseline belief that God is good. That if God is good and Jesus is resurrected, then if I believe on the resurrected one, I participate in the goodness of God as I resurrect in Christ. So the old me goes in to Christ and the new me comes up in Christ. And that is the new me. And I don't live this life based on a system of rights and wrongs, do's and don'ts. That's playing with the snake at the wrong tree. Call the tree what it is. So run from a message that focuses on do's and don'ts and run to a Jesus who has done it on your behalf. And where the message demands your attention towards the do's and the don'ts as the means of your righteousness, as the means of your favor, as the way to get to God... Stop sticking your hand in the thorn bush. That's Jesus' message. He goes, you're not going to find grapes. You're at the wrong tree. You don't find life through doing. You find life through Jesus has done. If I get in what Jesus has done... Shouldn't I be worried I'm not going to do anything? No, you should never be worried about that you're not going to do anything because the reality is if you get in what Jesus has done, Jesus is doing. What's he doing? Fulfilling the law. What's fulfilling the law? Living moral. Wrong. Doing the law is loving your neighbor. So what's Jesus doing? Actively doing right now in the earth. It's easy when we go through it with that lens. It starts, we muddy the waters when everything else becomes involved. Let me show you that I'm not, I know I sound crazy. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy because I've been raised in the church. And what we learned a lot of times in the church was do this, don't do that. If you do this, you'll go to heaven. If you do that, you'll go to hell. And all it did was suck the life out of most of us. Most of my peers quit. They quit church. I'm the idiot. As far as they're concerned. You're the dork that kept going. You're the dork that kept getting punched and knocked down and getting back up. Hit me again. Maybe someday I'll be anointed. Somewhere along the way, I had to have my own Damascus Road. I had to literally meet him in a, in a way that mattered to me. And I don't mean literally see him, but in a way that was as literal to me as, it, as if it were literal to me. I had to have my own 
revelation of the finished work. And then you don't worry so much about what is said. Then it becomes what you know you've seen in him, a resurrected Christ. So I know it sounds crazy. I, that, that's not a new accusation. That doesn't even hurt my feelings anymore. Big deal, being nuts. No, you are too, for the most part, to people. Listen, I mean, honestly, to people who are only establishing their belief on what they can see, touch, taste, and feel, you're already a nut job because you tell them you believe in a resurrected Jesus. And behind your back, they go, what an idiot. In a world where kids are aborted and people are murdered and women are raped and there's war on the scene and you believe in a resurrected Jesus, you believe peace on earth, goodwill towards men, you're the idiot. That's already out there. If you're not ready to embrace that, you're following the wrong Savior. So you can get off at the next stop, if you'd like. I mean, honest, I mean, that's what we're doing. We're following him. So, but just to show you that we're in good company with the crazies, let me take you through this one more time and run you back to a Jesus moment. You're going to know them by their fruits. The men gather grace from thorn bushes of fiction. This is even so every good tree bears good fruit. Bad tree bears bad fruit. That's the way it ought to be. Make it that way. Good tree can't bear bad fruit. Why I say make it that way? Because that's what Jesus says in Matthew 12. Make it that way. Make a determination. Stop jumping back into the old tree. Try to find grapes. Make a clear distinction. Go for the gospel or don't. Stop calling everything that comes down the pipe gospel. Stop calling everything that comes down the pipe life just because it's got someone's name on it. Stop it. He goes, you can, you can just keep getting stabbed if you want to, but you don't have to. You can live better than this. Good tree can't bear bad fruit. Bad tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down thrown into the fire. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire was what I told you at the beginning we get all excited about because we think what Jesus is saying is a bunch of people are going to burn in hell because they haven't done it right. But contextually, what is Jesus saying? What book are you in? Matthew 7. Just rewind the clock a little bit to Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. Here's crazy for you. All right, you ready? So you just jump on board. His food's locusts and wild honey. He lives in the wilderness. Jerusalem, Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, this is going to sound really familiar to you. You ready? Brood of vipers. He identifies the snake. He knows it when he sees it. Jesus will copy this in Matthew 12. It's Jesus quoting John in Matthew 12. In Matthew 3, John spots the Pharisees and goes, you brood of vipers, who warned you guys to flee from the wrath to come? You don't have the ability to hear that. What are you doing out here? I know you're not out here to get baptized. You must be out here to do something else, probably to make fun. Therefore, if you guys really want it, bear fruits worthy of repentance. But don't think to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, because I say to you, God's able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Don't come out here with your ideas that your heritage has done something for you, or you've built something special, therefore God must be on your side. That stuff's not going to work anymore. This idea that you are as good as the structure you've built is gone. Forget it. God couldn't care less about what happened in your heritage. He goes, there's a new sheriff on the scene. Watch what happens in verse 10. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
And Jesus quotes it at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. When he goes, every tree that doesn't bring forth good fruit going to get cut down and thrown into the fire. Where did he get it? He got it standing at the Jordan River listening to John preach. Hey, brood of vipers, you're hanging out in the wrong tree. God's sick of what you're doing when his children come in to get fresh fruit. So you know what he's going to do to that tree? He's going to cut the thing down and get rid of it. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I am going to be the one that baptizes you with water under repentance. Here it comes. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He indeed is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Not in the end of time. He's going to do it when you meet him. You want to know what's going to happen when you meet Jesus? Stuff starts to burn instantly. Whatever's not bringing forth fruit starts to burn. I didn't say it's all burned. Not yet. You're still carrying some of it. That's what's wrong with you. That's what's wrong with me. I'm still carrying some of it. But I'm in Jesus. And Jesus is in me. I'm Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm walking through the fire and the fourth man in the fire is with me. And he's burning up the stuff that doesn't belong in me or on me, and he's doing it because we're in relationship. You get baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Verse 12, his winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And you ought to thank God for this because this is what Jesus is doing in your life. He is taking his winnowing fan and he is separating the good from the bad. And he didn't just do it when you got saved. He's still doing it right now. And I believe he will do it until he's done. You go, what if you die before he's done? Let me start over. I believe he will do it until he's done, even if you die before he's done. His fan is in his hand. He is the eternal father. He doesn't stop. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't wear out. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is burning up whatever doesn't belong in you. He will keep burning up whatever doesn't belong in you. So by God, stop eating from the wrong tree. You're better than that. That tree has been cut down. You are no longer, it's no longer based on your performance or your works or your goodness or your evil. It's based on Jesus, the baptizer in the Holy Ghost. And when you came to him, that's what you went into when you were baptized into Christ. You were baptized into fire. Pastor Paul, do you think the fan is still in his hand? Absolutely. He has never put it down. You know why he hasn't put it down? Because we keep approaching him with chaff. And he keeps burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Don't worry about the wheat. He's got it. He gathers his wheat. You are in his hand, he said, and no man can pluck you out. Whatever is good belongs there. It's in his hand. You're good. Whatever he doesn't need, he's going to work on. I don't know what it looks like for you. That's why I've stopped getting a hard line when people's talking like, oh, I don't know, man, I'm under judgment. I used to be like, no, you're not under judgment. So now I just, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to relax a little bit. I don't, I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to, I'm not trying to back off on, you know, and say God's judging people for what they're doing. I'm just, I, I think we need to let people wrestle this out and realize that the judgment against sin and evil happened at the cross and you entered into his judgment. Can I work this out with you for a second? The judgment against sin and evil happened at the cross and you entered into his judgment, but you didn't come out. 
You went in. You're coming out in resurrection. But his fan is still in his hand and he's burning up the chaff. It's not breaking legs, giving cancer, killing your kids. Stop it. It's the chaff. It's the stuff that doesn't make the wheat taste good. You know what yours is. You don't need me to point it out. That would be ungodly. By the way, you go into a place that points out your chaff, leave. It's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't need to point out chaff. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to blow the chaff into the fire. Your neighbor doesn't need to get their giggles off on it. That's not the work of the Father. He loves you too much for that. Let's close here, Matthew 7, 20. Therefore, <laughs> therefore, by their fruit you will know them. So, do you get to judge people by their fruit? Be careful. Careful starting with the word judge. But you do get to know where a false prophet is by their fruit. You keep reaching into that and all you get stabbed. It's time to move on to a different tree. Eat where you belong. A lot thrown at you tonight, I know. I know. Wrestled out a lot up here. And uh, don't claim to have given a lot of answers, but claim to maybe ask a few more questions. So the Holy Spirit put this on my heart to end this way today. What did I hope to accomplish tonight? The Lord asked me that. I was 45 minutes done in the Holy Spirit. I walked out to get my mail today. And the Holy Spirit said, what do you think you're going to accomplish tonight? So I, walk, I you know, started to give my responses. And he goes, that's not good enough. Work this out. Work on this this afternoon. What do you want to accomplish tonight? Because if you're not careful, you walk out with a superiority of us versus them. You're going to be able to spot what's wrong with people in the church. You know, that's not good. That's not my people. They're better than that. So what do you want to accomplish tonight? All right? You're not clever inspectors that are right and everybody else is wrong. That's not us. We're not clever. We're not inspectors that get to determine who's the arbiters of truth. That's not what we do. What we do is look for the fruit we can eat. And where we don't find it, we stop sticking our hand into the tree. <laughs> and we start there. That's a good place to start. Stop reaching into thorns and expecting fruit. If you get stabbed, move on. Let me tell you, if you have to keep reaching in, reaching in, reaching in, reaching in, oh, but they love me, quit being the abused wife who keeps going back for more because hubby loves her. The juice ain't worth the squeeze. You keep working, 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 working. It ain't worth getting stabbed every time trying to go back and find something positive. And one more thing, stop feeding on moralism and find life. You can land with those things. You land with something worthwhile tonight. You don't walk out with an us versus them. You walk out with the realization that you can feed on the right tree and his name is Jesus and that tastes good. Axe is laid to all the other trees. Let the fan go to work. Do your work in me. Keep it up. Father, thank you. Thank you for what was a fun day of, a fun few days that I've had with you in this. Not always, I didn't even realize it was always fun. There was a few moments where I wasn't so sure it was fun. And that's because you've been, <laughs> you've been blowing the fan over the chaff. I, I, I need to dwell on the fact that you gather your wheat into the barn. You are capable of dividing what needs divided in me. As you do that in me, maybe you do that in this room, and I know you're doing it through the thousands of people who join us by video and by audio. You're doing it at your pace and in your time. I thank you. Keep that work, and may we keep ourselves in a place where we'll know the tree bites fruit so we'll just know what tree to eat from. Not so we'll know what tree to cut down. We don't cut down trees. You do. 
Thank you for that. We don't cut down trees, you do. We just stop eating from the wrong ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Father. That last line was the last thing I was supposed to teach. I remember that from today. I didn't write it down. A lot of times I say, Lord, if it's supposed to be, let it come back. You don't get to cut trees down. All right. So stop it. It's kind of where I started. Don't give up on the church. You're going to run into problems? Don't give up on the church. You don't stop following him because Judas betrays him. Peter, James, and John just keep right on following him.